All right, if you will, please open your Bibles. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. As we come back this morning to a study of chapters 12 through 14. This is our second study. And two weeks ago I said that we are starting a long journey within a journey. And the book of Revelation has 22 chapters. It's a long journey, even if we're doing a jet tour. And yet, when we come to chapters 12 to 14, we come to a section of Scripture that I wish was all one chapter. We're always remembering that the chapters are arbitrary. Mankind thought, you know, it's just so we can memorize things easier, find things easier. Let's put chapters. Let's put verses on there. And in one sense, I really do think, because I've read it all, my Christian life, that you you sometimes see chapters 12, 13, and 14 divided. I made a case for this, and if you weren't here, go back to the podcast, go back to the video. You can see more detail why chapters 12, 13, and 14 are together, and I'll even reference one part. But what God is doing in these, these chapters is pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see what is happening in heaven how it's impacting on earth with Satan influencing the evil being, the Antichrist. Next week, we're going to do a little brief study on the Antichrist. Uh, Chapter 13 is perhaps the most insightful chapter in his activities in all the Bible. There are many passages on the Antichrist, but chapter 13 really stands out and will be in that in July. Next week, though, we're going to do a little study on the um, person of the Antichrist I hope you'll find very beneficial. We've got a lot going on. We've got graduation, recognition for high school. We've got communion. Uh, We've got uh, Joel Snyder coming. So a lot going on next week. So I thought, well, let's just do this brief study next week, and we'll fit that in. So understand, keep reading chapters 12, 13, and 14 over the upcoming months, and at least upcoming month, and you'll be ready for our study when we get back to it in July. But I believe what we're looking at when we come to chapter 12, look at, I'll read verse 1. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars, and she was with child, and she cried out in labor, being being in labor and in pain to give birth. And I said there's a lot of symbolism in this section. Um, This is perhaps one of the best sections that we're going to see where, you know, we're going to understand the activity of Satan, the activity of the Antichrist. And this is all part and parcel from where John, who is telling us about the story of the tribulation, has taken a major shift in the book. And this is where I really believe, as our congregation is trying to understand and get their arms around the book of Revelation, When you understand Revelation chapter 10, John is given a little book, which is the second half of the tribulation. And so when we look at the events in chapters 12, 13, and 14, it's this part here. We're going to see references over and over in chapters 11 through 17, 18 to this reference, either like three and a half years, 40, uh, no, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, 
references back to the book of Daniel, that this is three and a half years. So when you study the book of Revelation and you understand the tribulation is a seven-year period, all right, so this, this is just a timeline of end times. We're in the present time right now. We believe there's an event coming called the rapture of the church. Somewhere soon thereafter, the Antichrist is going to sign a peace treaty based upon Daniel chapter 9. And because the tribulation is primarily, primarily for Israel, we're going to have the 70th week of Daniel. And so I'm not going back over that, but it is a seven-year period. Now, this other part, the thousand-year reign, this is Revelation 20, and this takes us into chapter 20, 22, the eternal state. But this is what everyone's interested in. They're interested in the tribulation. They're interested in what's happening. And we're really getting into what's really happening with the Antichrist. But for your own purposes, if you understand everything from chapter 11 through 19 is all pretty much this second half. And it's, again, John was given a little book where before he was said, in chapter 4, he was said, come up to heaven, look what's happening. And he watches what's happening. But in chapter 10, he's given a book that I believe is the rest of the tribulation, and everything in the following chapters just continue to give us sort of like the backstory, the backstory on these events. So just for those that want to understand Revelation and really want to understand what's going on, if you go to chapter 11, there's the story of the two witnesses. And the two witnesses take place over this three and a half years. At the end, they die. You have... I believe now clarity on the fact that the trumpet judgments are the second half of the tribulation. And then chapter 11 talks about how the trumpet judgments um, end right here. And, and so, again, remember, John is telling us about everything that happens in the second half from chapter 11 on. So the end of the trumpet judgments occur Chapters 12, 13, and 14, which we're studying as a unit, this end-time drama, is all about what this war in heaven we're going to talk about and the Antichrist being energized by Satan. That's all this part. Chapters 15 and 16 deal with the bold judgments, which are the very end. And then chapters 17 and 18 deal with Babylon, which will take us to how it's destroyed in the end, but will give us the back picture for all of human history. And I can't wait till we get to chapter 17 and 18. So with that understanding in mind, as we come to chapter, chapters 12, 13, and 14, what we're going to be doing is getting ready for how humanity is getting ready to go into eternity. And the one that's going to play a key role in this is this Antichrist, and he's going to appear in chapter 13, but we're seeing how everything is getting ready for it. Antichrist is the ultimate villain, right? Even the name, he's against Christ. You can think of evil people in movies, Darth Vader, Freddy Krueger. There is never anyone that's going to be worse than the Antichrist. And we look at what happened this week, and we've looked at what wars have happened around the world even recently, what he is going to bring upon this world is going to be even worse than what a Hitler or a Genghis Khan or Mao Zedong, uh, all these evil leaders have ever brought. 
okay? And so as we, as we look at his coming upon the world, it is going to be one of great deception. And you'll see this tie-in today. When we come to the book of Revelation, just remember the, the tribulation, the seven-year period, has two major purposes. Number one, it's to refine Israel. And, and through this story that you're getting in chapters 12, 13, and 14, you're going to see how Israel plays a key role in the end times. Again, you can't emphasize enough how most of Christianity today, because of deception, poor teaching, do not believe that Israel has a future. And yet, here, you've got to have your head in the sand to not understand the prominence of Israel. How God has made promises to Israel, and he will come through with that. But yet, at the same time, God is going to be bringing Israel to its knees. We know from the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, that when this tribulation, this seven-year period begins, two-thirds of every Jew alive will be killed. And when we come to the end, only one-third of the Jews will be alive. And they all will turn to Jesus Christ. That's Romans 11. That's even part a parcel of what we saw in Revelation chapter 11. So what you understand is that Israel is a major player in this. But at the same time, this is also to give man one last chance to believe. The tribulation is going to be very clearly from God. The world will see the trumpet, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bull judgments happening. And we have seen from chapters 6 and on that mankind knows that God is the one that's doing this. And they won't repent. They hate God. As Carl just said, they love darkness. And, and you're going to see a passage today that I think is very um, informative. You're here. You're blessed to be here today to study and hopefully put together a, a something that I think will really help you understand an understanding of life and theology. Because what we're doing when we're going through chapters 12, 13, and 14 You've got to be able to almost like pull the entire Bible together. Now, remember I've said in the past that when we go through Revelation and it's 22 chapters, there is not one direct quote from the Old Testament, yet almost every verse has multiple references to tie-ins to the Old Testament. Revelation brings the entire Bible together in a way that is just incredible. And what we're doing here in chapters 12, 13, 14, and the reason I said it's key characters in an end-time drama, and I like drama, I like watching movies. I like watching TV shows. I like going to plays. What you're looking at is God is playing out these 10 major characters. And so if you have your sermon notes and you pulled those out, we, we went through the first three two weeks ago. And we're going to go just through two more today. But on the back, there's the final five. And, and, and that's going to take us through chapters 13 and 14. We're just going to wrap up chapter 12 today. And sort of as if you watch a TV show or a movie and you're watching the credits and then the credits will scroll down and say, you know, in order of appearance, these are how these people appeared. It's sort of like that's not perfect, but what we saw first and foremost was this one, a woman clothed with the sun. And I just read that in verses 1 to 2. And you have to under follow the symbolism, but the symbolism is very clear to understand. We said, number one, that the first one is Israel. So Israel's the key player. 
then we went to verse 3 and 4. Another, verse 3 says, another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon having seven heads. And I greatly encourage you to go back, understand this. That, but we said the red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, this is Satan. And, and we made it really clear this is Satan. And our study today will, again, reaffirm that. And so Israel's a key player. Satan's a key player. And then we went to the male child. Jesus is a key player. And when we went to verse 5, we said that she gave birth to a son, a male child. We said that was Jesus. And then verse 6, the woman fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared for God. So as the story is playing out, the woman who gave birth, which was the nation of Israel, goes into hiding. And that's going to come and play a part. But this is the mother of the Christ. All right, so we're up to speed. And now let's pick up the fourth character in our play. And in the cast of characters and the players, sometimes it's an individual and sometimes it's a group. Well, in this one, let's look at verse 7. And it says, And there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his archangels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and the angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And what we have here is this incredible war of the good angels. They are our character, and so what we have is though Michael, who is one of the powerful angels in the Bible that is named, you know, Gabriel being the other one, and this horde of unnamed angels. So when we come to verse 7, you have this statement here that's absolutely incredible. A war in heaven. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but it just doesn't fit my framework. War in heaven. What do you mean, war in heaven? How is this playing out? How is this battle playing out? You know, tanks, ballistic missiles, you know, Star Wars zap. We are never told how this war is played out. But we are told that a war is happening in heaven. And where I take you back to the Old Testament, the men's study, we've been going through this and the most explicit statement for the first time ever, you learn that there's sort of like this battle that's going on in heaven in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And so we learn that there's this war in heaven. And based upon Daniel 10 and maybe a little bit from Job 1 and 2 as Satan comes up into heaven, we understand that somehow God has this conflict. And I mean, I can get ridiculous with the fact that, you know, you have angels hiding behind the throne of God, <laughs> bang, bang, shooting. I mean, how vast is heaven, where this is in the heavenlies, May, you know, the different degrees from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we learned that there were different levels of heaven. So however this was playing out, guess what? God doesn't tell us. All we know is war means conflict, and it's bad. And, and, and there, there seems to be from the scripture that there's an ongoing conflict in heaven. But this is taking us to a specific point in time. So it says in verse 7, there's war in heaven, Michael and his angels. So it seems like Michael's the leader. He's waging war with the dragon. We, we've said already the dragon is Satan. And the dragon and his angels waged war. His angels. Whose angels? Well, we've learned through other passages of the scripture that that Satan was able to get one-third of the angels, we believe, to come with him. And we call them demons. And so how many there are 
when we learn of good angel pictures where there's vast numbers and numbers beyond, you know, counting myriads upon myriads, if you've got those that are the good angels, then for those of you who love math, all right, you, you try to take a giant, you know, you can reverse it and think, we've got myriads and myriads and myriads of angels, and those are only a portion. You've got to do a mathematical calculation to get myriads, myriads, myriads plus to get the remaining portion to get the total, the, 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 the total group. And this amount of demonic beings has to be incredible in number. And perhaps that's what fits with the whole book of Ephesians chapter 6, the hierarchy of angels and Satan's at control. So we learn in verse 8, and they were not strong enough. All right? Who were not strong enough? Well, the dragon and his angels. And there was no longer a place for them in heaven. So they're no longer allowed to be in heaven, which is, step back. What do you mean? You would think that God is good. God would never allow any angels. There's this war in heaven, but there's no longer a place for them in heaven. But passages from the Old Testament, like Job chapter 1 and 2, where we believe that Satan's always had access to God, has now ended. And, and so part of what I want you to understand, where I think this is a blessing for you to understand, that what is going on? Because if you're God and you're dealing with Satan and he causes an uprising, you basically can squish him like the ant that's going to ruin your Memorial Day picnic tomorrow. So when you have an ant tomorrow, you see that ant, you think, why doesn't God just do that? Because this is what you have to do. You have to begin to understand God is at something, people. He's at a demonstration God is trying to show us something through history. What is God showing us? One, this isn't up on the screen. Number one, he's showing us the impact of evil. You know, let's say somebody dies in infancy, and they're in heaven, and one day you're in heaven with them. You're sitting to there talking to them, and they say to you, was it really that bad on earth? You say, <laughs> Oh my goodness, you had no idea what sin was like. And this person's looking around. They, they died in infancy. They never had an opportunity to see evil. You say, you can't believe. You know, if God told us that evil was bad, I don't think I would have ever grasped it when I would have seen the wars, the murders, the rapes, the lies, the betrayals. So much so that at times I felt like having a heart attack and dying. And I broke down in crying because the pain was so hard. You have to understand that we're going to be able in heaven, whatever happens with the history and whatever is going, what God's plan is, we will understand the depths of sin. And God has made a point to all of us, hasn't he? Hasn't God really made it clear to you how bad sin is? I mean, I could tell you sin is bad, but you've lived it. You've seen it. That's a purpose, I believe. And that, this is theological. This is a theological assessment when you're doing your understanding of theology and you're saying, what systematic theology? I'm trying to bring everything together. What is God doing? God is allowing us to understand the impact of evil, how wicked it is. God is also showing us the power of evil, that evil is pretty significant. Evil is powerful. Evil is powerful. 
It is able to deceive people. It is able to lie and, and, and cause people to not only kill, but to, to think that when they're killing, they're doing good. And, and for people to actually hate God, they do. People hate God, and there are many people who believe our God is the most evil God. That's the power of evil. We would never even begin to comprehend it, I think, in a personal way, a relating way, that unless we went through this. But I want you, if I have the second, if the first purpose is the impact of evil, the second, the power of evil, I believe that God is showing his power is greater than evil. And, and we're, we're seeing evil play out. And, and it, you know, you look at this and you say, why a war? Because I believe God is allowing Satan to throw everything, everything. So if somebody ever in heaven says, you know, God, if you let evil have its way, it could beat you. And I, God is always going to be able to say, in this brief amount of human history that is just a blip on billions and billions and billions and billions of years, really the time span of what is happening is really brief. God is going to say, Satan and his angels and everyone, they threw everything at me. And when it was all said and done, I said, you're done. And they went. Okay, because that's when we come to Revelation 19. The battle of Armageddon isn't a battle. God just says, you're gone. You're gone. You're gone. You know, if you all, you know, it's almost like, you know, there was a movie out there with the Avengers, wasn't it? And everybody, all the enemies just disappeared. It's sort of like, it. boom, you just disappear. There's no battle. There's no fight. Satan, you're gone. Because really, Satan's just a created creature. And evil, we need to understand, it is powerless against our God. Greater is he that's in you that's in the world. But God is allowing it to play out. So the timing of this war, some people debate like this is all happening right now. And, 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 but no, th- th- this is like a battle, I think, within the war, okay? Because when we look at verse 8, they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And, then I, and, and I believe this is the midpoint of the tribulation. This is what drives the Antichrist to do the abomination of desolation. This is what happens at the middle of the tribulation. But you should start verse 9 because verse 9 in all the Bible is perhaps one of the greatest passages to describe the enemy of Michael. Or us, not me, but the archangel. We believe that's archangel Michael. Because you got five descriptions here of this foe. One we've already seen, right? He's called the great dragon. Why do we call, and obviously we're talking about Satan, the devil here, and you'll see those names pop up. Why are we calling him a great dragon? A dragon, whether it's this picture of a dinosaur, a mythical creature, whatever it was, even in their history, was seen as a vile, vicious beast, terrifying not puff the magic dragon, not something that you put in the house like dino or something like that from the Flintstones. A dragon is something that breathes fire, destroys. So names and descriptions or titles mean things for God. And by calling him the great dragon and referencing him as red, ties him in the blood. He is a great dragon. He's an incredible foe. And just as a side note, You know a false teacher when they bind Satan. God wants us to treat Satan with respect. You study the book of Jude. And and, and the sense of 
we turn to God because God is the one that can beat him, not us. But he is called the great dragon because he's an enemy. Second, he's called the serpent of old. Look at verse 9. He is called the, he is, he's the serpent of old. This is the clearest passage when we talk about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent gives uh, Eve the fruit that's in the middle of the garden. This is the passage. If we did not have this passage that ties it clearly that that was Satan in the Garden of Eden. And a serpent, because of its curse, has now become sly, become wicked, anything associated with a liar. You know, there was a study many years ago that humans have an instinctive ability to hate snakes. I think there was a study down by a university in Texas, and I don't know how, it was fair, whatever, but they did this study on this road, and they put a turtle crossing the road. And people were driving down the road. They just got their license, and they see a turtle. And people go, they go around the turtle. They put a snake in the road, and the majority of people ran over the snake <laughs> because they hate snakes. The serpent of old. The devil. You see, this is like where he's called the devil. You look at that line. The word devil means defamer, slanderer, all right? You see what it says in verse 9? He's called the devil, all right? And then we're going to see down in verse 10 that he accuses them, the brethren, day and night. One of the things that's mind-boggling is that he is constantly in heaven somehow, I believe, getting information through his hierarchy, and he is able to bring accusations against us. We'll come back to that. But that's what he does. He is a slanderer. He lies, he twists, he defames. The fourth name we get is that Satan. Satan means adversary. He is an enemy. He is a foe. All right? Fifth, he is one who deceives the whole earth. That's the description. He doesn't call him the deceiver. He calls him the one who deceives the whole earth. And so I wanted to use what's in the Bible. So what we have here, what we have here is these five names. And what you got is the fact that this one, who is our foe, is thrown down to heaven. Now, look at what happens in verse 10. Verse 10 brings in like a minor character, and I struggled with making it 11. I could have done it 11. But in this minor character is going to interact with what the angels have done and what Satan has done, so I kept it. And the minor character could be you and me. You get goosebumps if you really understand this. We clearly know that it is also people who have died in the tribulation. How do we know this? Because what is happening is the, this war is playing out, and humans in heaven are watching it. And this is probably one of the verse, few verses in the Bible where sometimes you might get a little inkling that people in heaven have some understanding of what's happening on earth. Other than that, we don't know. Like I always picture us sitting on clouds in heaven and you have these giant teleprompters and you're able to watch what's going on earth. That's totally made up. That's not in the Bible. But we, we always wonder when we're in heaven, will we know what's going on on earth? Will we understand what's going on? Well, look at what happens in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. So loud voice, loud voice comes out. And so it, it's, it's, the thought is that this is like we're going to see a horde of people. And they make this proclamation. And this is, I think, the third time, one of three times in the entire book of Revelation that a proclamation regarding salvation to the world has come. 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And remember, I'm trying to say to you, this is chapters 12, 13, and 14, big picture, second half of the tribulation. And it's sort of like an announcement that this is where we're going. It's sort of like a pronouncement using a tense of a verb that it's here, but it's like a prophetic here. This is in the future, and it's as sure as happening. The process has begun. God's kingdom, and I, instead of like going through salvation, you know, deliverance, God's power, meaning his strength is being shown, his kingdom, you know, we've talked about how God promised the kingdom to Israel, promised the kingdom to Israel and all the followers of God that could go into that kingdom. That's here. Um, the authority of his Christ, Jesus is the one that's going to rule and reign, is here. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Okay? That's Satan. He's been thrown down. And here in verse 10, who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, I just read that, and did you catch it? Day and night. He's constantly doing that. Now, somehow, someway, God makes it so that we can understand that it's continual. And I like the way God uses word pictures, but... How many of you even instantaneously have already thought, there's no day and night in heaven? There's no day and night in heaven, is there? There's no going around the sun. So, but it's, it's what's happening on earth day and night. But what he's saying is, what's, what's ever happening on earth, round the clock, Satan's doing day and night. So verse 11, and they overcame. Now, who has he been accusing? Well, he's been accusing the brethren. And those now become clear that, that, that they have overcome him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. So these are, must have been people that have been martyrs who have died for their faith, and they did not love their life even when they faced death. So Satan, his accusations on this case have been specifically towards people going through the tribulation, and they did not love their life, so they ultimately died as martyrs. We saw that back in chapter 7. And for, verse 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and, and you who dwell in them. So heaven, rejoice, heaven, rejoice. <laughs> this loud voice goes out because basically in your part of the world, the war is over. All right? So this is no different than in May, remember, May 1945, America you see celebrations of people celebrating what? Victory in Europe. But you study the war, the war doesn't end until August. It's May. Well, you, have, you only have partial victory, people here. And what, look what he says. Verse 12, for this reason, O heavens, and you rejoice, you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, meaning the entire world, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he has only a short time. And, and part of the fact that, you know, you say, Mike, you put that chart out there. It's always hard for me to follow charts, but it's, I, I clearly understand it's seven years. The devil knows God's word. He knows it inside and out, the way he quoted the, to Jesus the Bible in Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Satan knows the tribulation's only seven years. He, he knows that he's only got now the second half, the short time. And we're going to see it's clear in the context that the short time is three and a half years. Why in the world would he just not give up? Because you need to understand part of what we're learning and understanding the power of evil is that evil is so irrational. And if you choose to not believe in Jesus Christ, 
you go down this path. And th this is why we watch people and they're in, they act as if they're insane. And sometimes we say you're insane. It's because sanity is the path of sin. I mean, insanity is the path of sin. And, and one of the things that happens is you say to Satan, you only got three and a half years. You should give up. You, you're, you're losing. But no, he's going to fight to the end and try and win. And we know he's going to lose. All right. So what do we have here? What do we have? I want to pick this up. We've got this description, and, and Satan's lost. But now, look what happens in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he per persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Okay, earlier character. Who was the woman? That was Israel. She gave birth to the ch male child, Jesus. Well, we believe this is the middle of the tribulation, and what's going to happen here is that we're going to find out what, who he's persecuting. Because if this is future, this is going to be the remnant of Israel during the tribulation. So I didn't want to say, well, wait, we've already seen this character. Well, this is like a character within the group. This is the remnant of Israel. Remnant means like a, a portion. And what's going to happen is what we're going to see is the Antichrist, through the power of Satan, is going to put his effort on trying to wipe out Israel. Why, do you, why does Hitler want to wipe out Israel? Why did um, the people in the book of Esther want to wipe out Israel? Because if you can destroy and kill every Jew, you can destroy God's plan to give humanity a kingdom through the Jews. And so what he wants to do is he wants to kill all the Jews. But verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So you catch it. He throws all those names, the dragon, the serpent. But all you've got to understand here is that this woman flees, which is, I believe, the remnant of Israel flees into the desert. This fits with so many passages like the passage in Matthew 24 where the abomination of desolation is called and, and God says when you see this run run into the desert and time times and half a time that's an expression for three and a half years and we have seen this expression uh, or multiples of it because God is letting those people who are putting effort in their studies to understand that th these are literal numbers and they can be literally understood and why symbolism well you know the symbolism is God's way of making you better students. Two wings of an eagle, a great eagle. Well, if you have a great bird with great eagles, you can do it fast. And you have to understand, supernaturally, Israel, who has a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation, is going to have a ceremony, and all of a sudden the Antichrist is going to declare himself to be God, and at that point, whoa, they are going to realize we have just made a deal with the devil. They are going to have to flee. And so verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle was given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness. Israel's going to flee. They're going to flee into a land that I believe in the Bible is the land of Petra, the land of Bozrah. And I'm going to show you that in a second. So that she could fly into the wilderness where she will be nourished. Israel will be sovereignly protected for three and a half years in the land of Jordan, which is right to the east of the land of Israel today. And, and what I believe is this is supernaturally going to occur, and God has already prepared it. And I've tried to show you this before, but this is from the Indiana Jones movie. 
okay? That is the treasury of the land of Petra. And that's not Indiana Jones, that's me. <laughs> Just in case you got a little confused. All right, all right. But this is, when you see Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1, when it says, who is coming from the land of Bozrah, speaking of Jesus, dipped, garments dipped in blood, I believe that Jesus Christ will come down at the battle of Armageddon. He will kill all of the enemies just like that. And he will go over to Bozrah, Petra, where the Jews, the remnant, our character has been hiding for three and a half years, sovereignly protected, that God has put in the land this area. And the reason I want you to see this is, this is what's famous, for those of you who watch those Indiana Jones movies, this is what's really well known. But 2000, I think it was 19, I had the privilege of going there with Austin and I. Austin and I had the opportunity to go there. And what I told you before is what is so bizarre is you go to this area and you have this open area, but then it says, now you want to go down to right where I just showed you? This cavern is one mile long. Okay? You go through this. Sometimes it opens up, and it's all through this, they have chariots going back and forth. Because some people, when they want to take tours, they don't, they don't want to walk it. Austin and I walked it. It was hard. Okay? And, and this, this area, you can see it's so narrow. And I'm going to show you a different picture. This is me standing in a different area. You just never know, you know, how wide it's going to be or whatever. But if you are hiding at the other end of it, it's going to make it very difficult for an army to come and get you. Think about that. One mile. One mile. Then when you come to the end of this, okay, that's the, that is the uh, treasury that I just showed you. And we had the best time. Austin and I, we, we climbed up here, um, and we ate lunch up there, and we could look down. But right in here... This goes like this way, and it opens up for about five miles. Hear me? Five miles. And what happens is, this is a man we met from New Jersey. He's a Jewish man. He wanted to come and go through Jordan. And up in the hill, up on the mountainside, are these caves. And our tour guide told us that they believe, as you go through these caves, you can hide, his estimate, five million people. Five million people. Five million people. So here is where I start to show you the vastness of this. I mean, it's incredibly vast. And as you go down, this is, Austin and I climbed a mountain, a little mountain, and this is us looking over this area. And, and back in here is like all these places that you can hide in these caves. So when you read the verse there and it says, and they fled into the wilderness that was, you know, there, this is, I believe, the most perfect place. Plus you have the reference in Isaiah 63 talking about Bozrah. Now there's a city called Bozrah. There are people who call this land here Petra, Petra meaning rock, Bozrah too. Either way, this is the best place to, be, to, be, to, to, to hide the Jews. But also I think with the Bozrah tie-in, I think it fits. But what I wanted you to see is here's me standing on this mountain, and we've climbed up, and it's exhausting. 
And just as a side note, they also found the place because the Romans came in here during one of their conquests and they had a sacrifice place and it was bizarre. It was a stone where we know that they did sacrifices, I think even of humans or people, whatever, I mean of animals, animals I think it was primarily. But, but um, so we're up on this and I just want you to see it's, it's really, really, really vast. And I believe one of the patriarchs was buried like over here somewhere. But as we went through this, just again, you see this, this is ongoing. These are different pictures. It goes on for five miles. We, I walked that one mile path. Then I turned and we went about two miles and it was so exhausting. And the reason I put this here is because I feel like I was in good shape. But at this point, it was so exhausting. And Austin and I are down about two miles down the road from where, where this is. Whoops, let me go back. Where this is. So right here, Austin, so graciously, you can always thank him. He saved me. He said, Mike, I'll buy you a camel or, or rent a camel. And that's how we got back home because it was so long, big. So that, I'm just, my point is, is when we read verse 14, please look at verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness in her place where she was nourished for time, times, half time. I believe that is, I believe that is Petra. I believe that's the location I just showed you. I believe it fits with Isaiah 63.1. So with all that said, the woman and her offspring is the remnant of Israel. So verse 15, and the serpent poured out, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So if any of you have ever been in a flood, seen a flood, and I've had the experience to see a couple in California. I've had the opportunity when the Ohio River was flooding to go and view that. It is unstoppable. Um, many uh, people have read, if they read American history, the Johnstown flood. Have any of you ever read it, how it wiped out a community? This is, God is using this picture that somehow Satan is going to come on like a flood. And he's, that's why I believe you see the passage in Zechariah where two-thirds of every Jew is going to be killed. This is, I believe, part of that fulfillment. Verse 15 is an incredibly sad verse for Jewish people. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth at the woman so that she might be caused, uh, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. So Satan is empowering the Antichrist to bring on this attack and it's going to bring about great death for the Jews. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Somehow, someway, that's going to play out. God doesn't tell us what battle that is, where it occurs, but somehow, whatever Satan is doing, maybe he's sending an army after these people, and God just opens up the earth, and just they drop down in. We don't know what's going to happen. But all I do know, it's pretty clear. I don't have to sit there and say, well, that symbolism just means nothing, and I can't figure it out. I just, I mean, I think it's really clear. Somehow, this, the, the, the pursuit is going to fail. And then verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And, and I believe that this means that what we're going to see is Satan is going to continue to persecute other Gentiles who make professions in Christ. We know during the tribulation that people will be making professions in Christ. We know that. Um, and this is why I keep telling you, leave Bibles behind, leave tracts behind, you don't know if the rapture occurs tonight and the tribulation starts in a week or a month, people will be able to come into your house, they'll loot your house, they'll read your stuff. Maybe some people, some people will get saved. Satan, though, is not going to be happy with anybody that makes a profession in Jesus Christ. 
and, and he will continue to make war with them. And that's why we have seen so many passages in the tribulation talk about martyrs and, and the praise of martyrs, which we just saw earlier. So, all right, there you go. I, I'm really hoping that this passage really helped you. Five characters out of the ten we've seen. We've seen Israel, Satan, Jesus, Michael and his angels, the woman and her remnant children. The remnant children. If you know these five, you know each one of these plays a key role. I'm hoping this, this study excites you. you. You really begin to understand the Bible. You understand systematic theology. What is God doing? But here's some lessons. Number one, God is faithful. He made promises to Israel. He's made promises to us. He will come through. Number two, you're learning the lesson that God has to let evil go sometime. Because he's got a big picture. God has some rhyme or reason for all of this. We've got to trust through the pain. Because if it was me, I'm squashing that bug tomorrow, right? That ant, you're bothering me? I want you out. I never want to see you. I wish that God would squish Satan, and maybe from the perspective of a billion years of eternity, it, we're going to look back upon this time, and it's going to be a blink of the eye, and you're going to say, yeah, God's going to say, yeah, it's exactly what I did. But I'm telling you right now, my 60-plus years on this earth are too painful. I don't know how long you've been on this earth, but I've seen too much. I hate what I've seen what Satan can do. But for whatever reason, until now, God is letting evil go. And so what we must remember, that God is more powerful than evil, and we must continue to use the powers of the weapons of evil, um, to, I mean, to fight evil, and that is prayer and the word of God. Please, um, don't take the study of Revelation as an academic exercise just to be able to fill out a chart. Revelation chapter 1 talks about blessed are those who heed and understand this book, basically. And I'm telling you, if we understand it, then you have to say, wait a second, evil is so, so powerful. I need to use the weapons of war. I need to use the weapons of war, and my weapons are prayer in the word of God. But finally, just remember, all of history is under God's control. And if you're not on God's team, you lose. So this is why we keep telling people, you better come to faith in Jesus Christ. A person who's born again has repented, has turned to Jesus, has become born again. Unless you're born again, you're not in the light, you're not on God's team, you're going to be a loser. And yeah, for now... It might be in the fourth quarter, and there could be a second to go, and you're looking around, and you're saying, my team's up a 1,000 to nothing. Ha, 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 ha. We're, we're getting away with whatever we want. We're winning. But I'm telling you, God can score 1,001 points in the last second, and, and you will lose. So don't think you're getting away with anything. Today is the day of salvation. If you haven't become a believer in Jesus Christ, well, we pray, call out to God and call upon his name. Get saved today believing that he's God and man who died on the cross and rose from the dead and that by faith alone, not trusting in good works or baptism or church attendance, that you have to give your life to Jesus Christ, submit to him. Please do that today. And then for us, take that message to the world because as you're looking at the craziness of this world, you better believe this stuff is coming. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word, the freedoms we have here in America. We thank you so much for those who faithfully gave their lives so that we can have freedom. You go all the way back to the Revolutionary War for our history, and we know, God, it just keeps adding on. The War of 1812, the Spanish-American War. There's just war after war after war, World War I, World War II, Korean, Vietnam. Every one of these 
wars have played a part in trying to maintain our freedom. And yet, people have died in these wars. And it's not a small thing, the freedoms they've bought us. So God, even having a military just reminds the world right now, if our country allows us freedoms, that there is a battle and a fight against evil. But for us as Christians, we understand that ultimately evil is going to have its day. It's going to have an apparent victory. It's going to seem as if it's won. But we know, Jesus, one day you're going to just wipe them all out. In the meantime, I'm asking that this study of Revelation helps everyone here keep reorienting where history is going and make sure that we're working for the things that remain and make sure that we all believe. In Jesus' name.